This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome to the CE Drive podcast. Jason Watt. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Jessica. Jessica's going to go through some underwriting challenges that she's encountered, and it's a topic that I really like. Those of you that listened to the last episode, you would have heard Darren talk a little bit about underwriting, so I felt like this was a nice follow-on. This episode is good for life insurance and accident and sickness insurance credits in Alberta. It will be good for life insurance credits in all other jurisdictions and good for financial planning credits from FP Canada. The color for today's episode is red. The color for today's episode is red. Okay, there's not a lot of technical detail that I need to go into before we listen to Jessica's interview. I'm going to roll right into it, and then afterwards I have some follow-on comments. Okay, thanks very much for joining us, Jessica. Jessica is a financial advisor primarily focused on an insurance practice in central Alberta, although your firm has investment funds as well. Jessica, and curiously, also formerly a lawyer. That's right, Jessica? That is correct, yes. Perfect. And I know we're going to chat a little bit today about underwriting, but you're relatively new, a couple of years in the business. And I'm interested to hear what some of your early experiences would have been around insurance underwriting, both with life and disability here. Sure. So, I mean, I feel like as a newer advisor, um, you get a lot of maybe the more straightforward cases, young people needing insurance to cover their mortgage, you know, relatively healthy, that kind of thing. So, so the first few are certainly pretty straightforward, which, you know, gives you some confidence and gives you some experience, but um, certainly that doesn't last. And so things, you know, get complicated from there, particularly on that underwriting side in terms of um you know, different medical issues that you just can't always foresee um, and that type of thing. So so when did you uh, start to run into tougher cases? And kind of, Was it life, CI, disability? Was it sort of all three or something else yeah. that I haven't thought of? No. <laughs> yeah, I think certainly the life and disability. I find disability um, even more challenging. I, I find it can be a hard sell for people, um, which is interesting because, of course, statistically speaking, you're far more likely to become disabled than you are to die at a, you know, a younger age range. So it, it's certainly such an important product. And yet 
it can be a difficult sell for people. It's typically more expensive than, you know, you can get in terms of, for example, term life insurance, that side of thing for people who have pretty basic needs. Um, and there are many people who have coverage through employment, often not not the best coverage, but if you've got something, it's certainly better than nothing. But that sort of adds another layer of that hard sell for people in terms of understanding and accepting why it might be important to, you know, take on that extra monthly or annual cost. Is it a matter of course for you to have the disability insurance discussion? Uh, you know, it really depends on the client. Um, certainly with new clients, it is something that we always, always cover. Um, I think probably something, um, Jason, that I need to be better at in terms of covering with existing clients, um, just because, of course, circumstances can change, uh, group benefits can change, um, employment situations can change, family situation can change. So it's something that I think um, probably I could certainly improve on in terms of existing clients. But generally, yes, always cover it off with a new client for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's it's such a valuable conversation to have. And as you said, it's it's sometimes a tough sell, right? The premiums are higher. It's a little bit harder risk maybe to understand. What do you do in the, let's say, for lack of a better term, sales process to prepare your client for what underwriting is going to look like? Yeah, well, I mean, I think always discussing... Um, the basics in terms of what we know is going to be needed. You always know in terms of, you know, the phone interview and that type of thing based on someone's um, personal situation and demographic. Sometimes you do know whether they will need additional blood, urine vitals um, or the ATS as well. Uh, but, but that's always something I try to bring up as like, you know, if there's a red flag or if there's some additional digging that they feel they need to do, then this would be the next step if it's not something that is always done as a matter of course for that particular client's situation and application. Um, and then, of course, the income information. Always discuss that in terms of the disability as well, because that's going to be an important part of things. And what about results? Do you talk about, you know, the, the opportunity for, like, approve as and then decline, postpone? Do you go through some of those things, or is that too much to bring up with a client early on? You know, it's something that I think um, certainly for my first few cases, particularly on the disability side, I think is is I'm seeing as more important to bring up and to cover off because there are just so many different exclusions and, you know, the opportunity for reconsideration and all of that. There's There's so many options in terms of the way the underwriter can go, particularly on the disability side, that I think you know, it's something that I'm learning is really necessary to cover off with clients because you're not always going to get it, all of the underlying health concerns or health history with a client in front of you. And that's fine, but I think it's important to kind of lay that groundwork in terms of, you know, this might not go 100% smoothly, as I'm describing it could. So I think it is important to sort of lay the groundwork for that possibility. Um, and, and, and I think that's something that I've learned through some challenging cases too. Yeah, and it's those challenging cases, I think, that we want to get into. So what are the areas where you found your, your biggest, let's say, disappointments as far as uh, underwriting goes? 
Yeah, biggest disappointments and biggest fights, perhaps, um, <laughs> in terms of conversations with underwriters and, and requests for reconsideration and providing additional information. Certainly a lot more, a lot more work than those straightforward cases and a lot more thought and client management goes into these challenging situations. So I think, you know, one of the biggest areas that I've noticed within the past year or so um, in terms of these big challenges in on the underwriting side is mental health concerns for clients. I know this is a, an important concept and it's one that I don't think gets discussed enough. What's been, has been the challenge around the prescription somebody's on, or is it a change of prescription, or is it uh, the fact that they're visiting a counselor? What have you seen that's that's kind of gone wrong here? Yeah, so um, certainly a diagnosis in a, in a couple of cases. Um, there was medication in one case, and interestingly in that case, it was a disability application. The person had been on anti-anxiety medication and extremely stable for many years. And that still came back as an exclusion um, with no opportunity for reconsideration, which was surprising to me given, again, that history of stability. Um, I know the statistics in terms of, you know, I've heard from a couple of different companies, right around that 30% mark of claims um, on the disability side are mental health related concerns. Um, and that result in an inability to work. So, so I understand, you know, the statistical side of it, but I think there it just brings up some really interesting challenges in terms of the ongoing stigma associated with mental health concerns. Um, that, yeah, I think it just really um, adds a whole other layer of complexity and um, difficulty in terms of managing client expectations and. Um, and helping a client, you know, to the greatest extent possible in terms of getting the coverage they need. Just going back to the exclusion in this case, was it just a broad exclusion, mental health and or nervous disorders, or was it more specific to the client's circumstances? Uh, You know what, I would need to go back and and double check the wording in that particular case, Jason. Um, In a couple of the more recent cases that I've dealt with, they were fairly broad. Um, in terms of the exclusion. Um, One was essentially, um, you know, they would reconsider after two years, but there had to be no symptoms, no treatment, either recommended or otherwise, and no diagnosis of any type of mental health-related concerns. Um, And that one was actually, there's no medication, no treatment, no diagnosis in terms of the client's history, medical history, Um, but there was an instance of work-related stress that they had sought some support for. Yeah, that um, one seems really tough to me. You know, we, we send this message like, let's talk and use yeah. your EAP and all that kind of stuff. And Absolutely. And it, I, I found that personally really challenging because that just exactly, I mean, I think that really goes against uh, a lot of the messaging that um, we're, I think, as a society <laughs> trying to get out these days in terms of, you know, the importance of um, seeking help sooner than later and, you know, just the, that um, drive towards destigmatization of, of any kind of mental health concerns. So that, that was really tough because I just, yeah, I have a personal problem with it. So in that particular case, did that person have time off from work? Did they, or was it no just No time off they... from work. Nope. 
Wow. So they really just called yep. their EAP or something like that. And yeah. Yep. They they sought they sought support for um, I think what was described as I think a feeling of um, stress and overwhelm. Um, I believe that may have been work related, and I think that may have been that trigger for the underwriter as well in terms of going okay. Well, unless the job changes, this may be an ongoing issue. Um, but yeah, dif- I mean, really difficult really difficult to explain that to the client uh, in terms of what that means and and the fact that there's no guarantee of reconsideration, right? Um, I mean, it would be one thing if they, if they would, you know, without question, review the situation in a couple of years. But no, I mean, it was, it was a fairly, it seems fairly harsh <laughs> from my perspective in any event. So was it that the policy was issued with an exclusion that they would reconsider after two years or it was declined? Yes, it was. So, no, it wasn't. It was an exclusion um, for two years and they would reconsider it potentially. But again, there would be, um, there would have to be no diagnosis, no symptoms, no treatment being sought or recommended. So, and I think um, I know the answer, but how did the client respond to that? Uh, yeah, it was the client was the client was very upset by it, um, and I, again for the same reasons we've already discussed in terms of, I, I mean I think to me that has um, a bit of a chilling effect in terms of, um, you know, it doesn't support the idea of people seeking mental health um, supports when they may need it, um, and again sort of penalizes them for seeking help at the time when they feel like they they require it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a very challenging discussion and multiple discussions, frankly, with the client. Um, and they certainly took some time to consider whether they were prepared to proceed on that basis. So, Did they end up paying premiums or are they going without coverage then? You know, they did end up paying premiums, but I am skeptical as to <laughs> whether that will continue on a long-term basis. And uh, I mean, I, I think we'll just have to see how things go. I was very concerned about, you know, the client being in a situation where they'd had no coverage at all, um, just given their personal situation. And so, um, you know, did did manage to place the policy. But um, but I don't know that anyone's really happy about it at the end of the day. I, I assume part of the conversation is what if I experience stress a year from now? Do I now go back and get treatment or am I supposed to tough it out? And Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that type of second guessing is a real shame. I mean, I, I don't think that does anyone any good, um, including the insurer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a fair point, right? The insurers are still in business. So I guess if you were the insurer, I'm sure you have had this conversation, right? If you're if you're able to step into the insurer's shoes, what would you like to see changed in a case like that? How do you, because, you know, you're right. The statistics do support that there's a fairly large number of claims related to workplace stress and, and all that goes along with that. So so where's the trade-off there? How do you, have you thought about that? You know, I've thought about it and and it is it, it is difficult to put myself in the insurer's shoes, partly because I simply don't have the statistics or experience that the underwriters do in terms of um, the type of situations they see. 
nor do I have the benefit of, you know, any um, real experience or information on the claims side. I mean, I don't have an extensive um, background in terms of helping people make their disability claims. And so I think perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't be so hard on the insurance companies um, without the benefit of that, you know, extensive database and uh, experience. But I, I mean, I would, I think I would hope for a little bit more, um, a little bit more leniency in terms of people who are seeking appropriate support, uh, as well as incorporating the idea of the history. And, and what stability means and, and what length of time, you know, is appropriate in terms of not having any concerns in order to be able to provide the client with, with a little better coverage than I feel like we were able to get in those situations. To the fact that you're relatively new, I'm not sure that a lot of experience would help here in terms of data, right? You Even for mm-hmm. agents that have been around for... 20 or 30 years, and I know you have at least one of those in your practice, right? They still will have seen a limited number of claims and really it renders that all fairly anecdotal. What about, do you feel like the insurer should be sharing more of its claims data? Would that, you think that would make a difference here? You know, that's a good question, Jason. I I don't know. It, I mean, it may in terms of, um, in terms of being able to provide a bit more context to the client, you know, other than that statistic about the 30% of claims being related to mental, because mental health concerns, that covers a very broad, um, a very broad spectrum of um, health challenges. And so, I mean, potentially it may um, help if there was a little bit more sharing of information there. Um, But at the end of the day too, I think one of the biggest challenges here is the client management side of things in terms of having those difficult conversations uh, because it is not something that is, um, I mean, I mean, we talked about this already in terms of it being, there's still a stigma associated with mental health um, concerns in our society. And I think that, uh, I think that that makes it all the more challenging to bring up these very personal um, health concerns with clients and talk about why, the insurer has an issue with it. Um, and so that's, it's more of an interpersonal um, challenge that comes up there as well in terms of, um, in terms of actually, you know, managing your business and, and helping a client through it. Yeah. I mean, it certainly puts you in an awkward spot where you're the face of the insurer here, right? And uh, absolutely, you know, does, does the client sort of see you as the bad guy or how does that play out? Yeah. Depends on the client, <laughs> and it depends on which conversation. Um, I, I've I've been yelled at uh, once, uh, and that was when I was the messenger when I was delivering the initial news in terms of. And this was a separate case entirely. It was a life case uh, where there was a decline related to mental health concerns. But um, but I I find that you know clients as long as you are. As long as you're honest and you're respectful uh, and empathetic, I think is probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I think you can have a reasonable conversation about it. That's not to say it's not going to be awkward or challenging, um, and that you might not make some missteps. But I think if you're, 
you know, genuinely concerned and genuinely wanting to help your client, I think, I think it's, it's very, very doable. Um, and, and again, I think you just have to have a bit of a thick skin and some patience as well in terms of getting through that initial um, reaction on the client's part of anger or bewilderment or, or both. Um, and yeah. So having had some of those challenging interactions, do you have a toolkit you bring here? Is there is there something that you do differently now than you would have a year ago? Would there be some advice you would give to a person who's never had to have that conversation? Anything you can help us out with there? I think I think having as much information as possible prior to that phone call or meeting with the client um, is helpful. So if there's any lack of clarity or any additional background or um, information that would be helpful to clarify things for you as the advisor in terms of um, explaining things to the client, I think it's really important, first of all, to take the time. And even if that means, you know, you need to wait a day or two to give the client the news, I think that can be very, very helpful to be able to answer some more questions and explain things a little bit more thoroughly. So I think a conversation with the underwriter where possible is always very helpful. Um, so I think information is really critical in terms of having um, you know, a reasonable conversation. And then honestly, I think it's about being honest and being, again, being empathetic. Um, and, and planning in advance, you know, making sure that you have all of those notes and any messages from the underwriter and the decision and all that right in front of you is really important as well. Having been a lawyer, I'm very much a fan of being overprepared for things. And so I think that's, that's actually served me well in terms of having some of these challenging conversations. This conversation with the underwriter, and I think this is an avenue worth exploring a little bit here. Obviously, you're trying to maintain a relationship there too, right? You can't sort of pick up the phone and and although I know some people do, right? I don't know if it's your style or not, but you can't pick up the phone and just scream at the underwriter, right? Is How do you manage that conversation? Well, again, I think it's respect, approaching it from a place of respect and um, genuine curiosity is always helpful. Um, I've I've never, certainly never yelled at an underwriter. Uh, I've, I've expressed my extreme disappointment, perhaps more harshly than I should have a time or two in the past, but, but absolutely it is important. I mean, as the, as the in-between, <laughs> you need to maintain a relationship on both sides of that equation with the insurer and the insurer's employees and contractors, as well as your own client. And that's really tricky sometimes. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it just, it's just about digging and, and making sure that you have the best information that you can in order to help your client. Um, and I've found some really useful information has come out of conversations with underwriters in terms of some of those challenging cases, just asking, um, you know, the background and what does this language particularly mean? And, and, and they're, they're generally a very, um, experienced and I mean fairly reasonable bunch in terms of having those conversations has been my experience as well provided that you are you know you do approach it from a place of um, yeah respect I guess. I think you hinted earlier that you have had some success maybe not as much as you'd like but getting underwriters <laughs> to change things or to, to revisit their position can you mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit? Yeah I mean I think uh, 
it, it, it happens rarely in my experience, uh, but I did have one. I did have one case, and it took quite some time. Um, and I think there was some, perhaps some going up the chain in that particular case as well. Um, and I just, I don't. I'm not really prepared to give a ton of detail about it, but uh, but yes, I, I think it, it was a matter of um, pushing, and uh, and and then some. They did end up coming back and um, had requested some additional, basically, that an additional questionnaire be provided um, and and completed by the client. And so, on the basis of that extra information, they were able to you know change their decision. Um, yeah, but it, like I said, in my experience, it's it's not necessarily always successful. Case, I don't know how much. Again, if you just want to dispense with it, it's fine. Um, yeah. But it, was that a life or disability case? You know, it was a life case. It was not a disability case. It was a life case. And yeah. it was that they were going to decline initially, and you got them to yes, switch they to, were. Yeah. yeah, that's that's exactly it. They were going to decline, um, and. And and some of the challenge there too is I think uh, when you have the client do the phone interview as opposed to you completing the questionnaire with them in terms of the you know lifestyle and health questions and that type of thing, then it can be very challenging because you don't necessarily know how that conversation went, <laughs> and all you can really have. Um, is the client's perception of it, which again, thinking about mental health and related concerns, um, that uh, that can be challenging, uh, because again, it can feel very invasive to the client, uh, and as the advisor, being completely removed from that part of the underwriting process, um, some of the client's feedback can come as a surprise, and so that was one of those cases where there was, uh, yeah, I, I had a the client was upset about how some of the questioning had gone, um, rightly or wrongly. I mean, I, I truly don't. I truly don't know at the end of the day exactly uh, how that went. So just based on on that challenging case and maybe on, on your other experience as well, do you have a feel for, do you have a preference, I guess, for uh, whether you prefer to have telephone interviews done or do you, do you prefer old school, you know, you're going through the medical questionnaire with the client and maybe some reasons for or against that? Yeah, it is, there's certainly a trade-off there, either way you go. Um, I think uh, I've, I've done it both ways. Uh, my preference is still to have that done by telephone interview and partly for client convenience uh, and and for being able to move forward quickly. We deal with many clients who are actually not local to us. And so it can cause a delay and many challenges in terms of getting that completed in a timely way uh, if, if you kind of insist on doing that uh, directly with the advisor and the client. Uh, rather than doing the telephone interview. So that that's honestly one of the main reasons um, that I do prefer to do the phone interview. I also um, I also think, and this is, I, I think it probably depends on the situation, and this is just my, my gut feeling in terms of it. I find that clients, I believe, are likely to be a little more honest and a little more forthcoming um, with, a stranger over the phone, 
which may sound strange, but when you're talking about some of these more sensitive um, topics, then I think I think they're likely to be a little bit more forthcoming and um, and honest potentially in their responses. And I think that's really important in terms of a client service perspective in a roundabout way because you would just never want someone to be in a situation where they weren't completely honest because they weren't comfortable talking about it with their advisor. And then, you know, they get a claim denied later. And what about liability here? Have you given any thought to the liability trade-off? You know, on the on the one hand, you're potentially answering que- or asking questions that you're not, you know, fully qualified to understand all the language around. And on the other hand, you're sort of passing the liability for the insurance case to that telephone underwriter. Does does that matter to you at all? Am, am I overthinking this? I, do, I mean, I don't think you're overthinking it, but um, those are the two options we have available to us. And I think there is a risk potentially either way. Um, and I think you've identified it, Jason. I mean, uh, there are certainly things that I can't, <laughs> that I can barely pronounce on some of those medical questionnaires. Um, and and I think some challenges exist in terms of passing that responsibility off as well. But I mean, at the end of the day, you do the best you can. And and I, I find that clients like that opportunity um, to do it over the phone with, um, you know, at a time of their choosing, um, because those telephone interviewers tend to be far more flexible in their timing um, than than I can be. And so... Yeah, I mean, it depends on the situation, which way is the best way to go. But I think, I don't think you're wrong um, in terms of considering those those aspects. But at the end of the day, I think there's risk either way. Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it. And then that client convenience, of course, it means you're more likely to get the, the case done earlier rather than later. You're not going to have issues lingering. So I'm not a big proponent of one or the other, but I think you've considered it fairly and especially like you say a lot of your clients aren't directly local to you right so. mm-hmm. yeah and i mean right now in terms of the pandemic that's going on we're really not having any face-to-face meetings in any event so that does add another you know an extra layer of challenge there too yeah that's i mean a fair point we are uh what are we at the end of april here as far as uh, listening to the recording later on so it's certainly challenging that way. Now, just going back to, like, you seem to have fairly strong feelings about the ability of people to talk about mental health issues. Is there any other point, because you're a financial planner, of course, right? And Mm -hmm. is there any other point at which you discuss mental health in your dealings with clients other than at the insurance underwriting stage? I think uh, not necessarily in a very um, purposeful and direct way, but I do think it is a part of part of your responsibility as an advisor in terms of when you are interacting with a client um, and you do have you know an ongoing relationship to sort of get a sense of how people are doing um, and whether there's any, you know, anything that they just feel like they, you know, need to discuss um, in terms of um, anything that's going on in their lives. 
um, I, I found this as a lawyer as well. I think you, you often have a lot of conversations that are not necessarily directly related to what the client actually came in the door for. Uh, but I think it is an important part of the work that we do in terms of providing um, yeah, just another layer of uh, support and um, advice to clients. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to fully step into the role of being a counselor, right? It's no, not like we're not trained to do not. that. Yes, it's certainly um, not. So, have you ever re referred a client for mental health or even suggested to them just to pick up the phone and call their EAP or anything like that? Would that show up in a in an interaction with you know, a client? I yeah, but, uh, potentially. I wouldn't hesitate to do so if if I felt like that would be um, helpful to the client. I really wouldn't. Um, so I have not in the past, uh, but I. Uh, but yeah, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be an issue to me to maybe suggest that to the client. Um, and and sometimes clients do disclose you know, the support that they are seeking. And I, I find it really important um, to just support them in that in that choice and in whatever type of support that they are seeking and, you know, encourage them and congratulate them for taking care of themselves in that way. I know you're just done your uh, CFP exam, right? Despite your short amount of time in the industry. It's yes, yeah. Just, just this year, there's actually a, a mental health component added to the CFP curriculum now. I like it in terms of, you know, you talk about the stigma. Well, the fact that people are learning this at the, like at that base level, they really will contribute to useful discussions, not just around insurance underwriting, but like you said, just how are you doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I also think it's a topic that, you know, comes up naturally and maybe not in terms of even that particular um, term itself, you know, mental health, but in terms of self-care and in terms of, you know, people being, um, you know, satisfied and content in their lives, I think it's, that's often a topic that comes up related to big life changes as well, right? We often see clients who are going through, you know, a separation or who are shifting from working life to working part-time to retiring entirely. And, and you know, it's such a huge component of any of those changes that I think it's, yeah, it's something that comes up naturally. And so I think it is important to have that be a component in terms of training for that financial planning stream, because it's it's a component of almost any interaction with a client. Yeah, I think that's it's a good thing to recognize. And I, I like, you know, the that insurance element gives you a little bit of uh, sort of an excuse almost to talk about it. But even mm -hmm. if you don't have that, you still have that ability to just, like you said, how are you doing, right? Nothing, yes. nothing more complicated than that. Now, I just want to go back to the sort of underwriter's perspective here. And maybe not the individual underwriter, but from a a collective or the insurer's perspective. Do you think that some of the challenge here, and I'm thinking about this as we're talking, that you know we say mental health, and we cover really a, a vast range of conditions. And you could talk about like acute depression and chronic depression. You could talk about stress and anxiety. You could talk about you know specific you know diagnosed conditions with like the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is like. 1200 pages of conditions, right? Yeah. And we sort of lump that all together and say mental health, but we don't really do that with physical health, right? If I said the other, if I said, you know, physical health 
it's responsible for two thirds of all disability claims. So therefore I'm going to exclude anything related to, do you see the trait like what I'm thinking here in terms of maybe a little bit more granularity would be useful? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really fair point. And I wonder if potentially we will move in that direction, I, given the way the physical health is um, parsed in terms of the underwriter's consideration and and the opportunities for exclusions. Because absolutely, I mean, it, it the exclusions that I've seen uh, in terms of the cases that have come back for me have been unbelievably broad, and and you really don't see that in terms of in terms of those um, physical health complications and and the exclusions on that end at all. Um, so yeah, I I think I think that would be I mean very very helpful and beneficial for clients. Um, but this is also, this is an easy way to do it uh, from the underwriters and from the in industry's perspective. I, I mean, like I said, I would I would certainly hope that we may move in that direction, but um, it may also take us some time to get there because I think that, again, with mental health being, um, you know, such a, I mean, a relatively newer area of the entire physical health conversation, it may take some time to move in that direction. Now, do you do any simplified issue policies or the you know, policies that are accident only or sickness only? Does that just given that I, you're I don't, in sort of a rural yeah, area? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't do many of those, um, but uh, it is an alternative, I guess, is, yeah, not an ideal alternative uh, in many cases, but it's, it's an option that's there and does provide some coverage. But I find for my clients, it's really, it's really not getting necessarily at the at the full um, picture in terms of what is really required in their personal situation. And I guess, have you done that where you've had a client who gets a decline and you say, well, we're, we'll do an accident only policy? If, have you ever taken that approach or is that not a, a viable solution once you get to this point? Well, I mean, it can be a viable solution in that it does cover off some of the risk. Um, it depends on it, it depends on the client's reaction to it and their perspective as well. And so that's just a continuation of the difficult conversations that have probably come before it. Um, it's not it's not something I do as a matter of of course necessarily in terms of. Um, I mean, I haven't done it a lot of times, no. Uh, but, but again, it's it's an alternative um, for a client in that tough situation. When you do have a client who ends up with a decline, whether life or or disability or CI, how do you follow up with that in terms of other risk management steps? Is there anything you could do there? Do you find that that normally sort of ends the discussion, ends the relationship, or do you do you have other sort of financial planning measures you can put in place here? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I think, um, I mean, I think there are other measures that can be put in place that don't necessarily, not a perfect fit, uh, but, but yeah, I, I think it is important um, to outline that risk clearly for clients in terms of what they're left with um, option-wise and, and what is not available to them. Uh, and so I think the reason why letter is an important part of that um, because you've got to put it in writing. <laughs> um, and so that's something we've been doing um, in our office fairly diligently is, um, you know, no matter what that result is, outlining, 
you know, their current situation and where we see the gaps um, and some of our other recommendations as well. I'm happy to hear you refer to the reasons why letter. That's uh, I like this step. I know a lot of people aren't a fan of it. They find it's extra work or such argument, but I think you present it well here where you say, look, you still have a need and a risk, right? That's essentially yeah. what, yeah, what you're pointing to. So yeah, yeah that's, yeah. That's really good. Do you have any last minute thoughts in this uh, sort of frustrating situation? And maybe you can talk about this a little bit. How do you come to terms with that where you're not able to fully meet the client's needs, but you still want to have a positive outcomes for that client? Any, mm -hmm. any advice or wisdom as to how you, you balance that off? Uh, no, I mean, it's very, it's very disappointing as an advisor and um I, and that's part of my personality as well, is I, it's very disappointing to me and extremely frustrating when I'm not able to accomplish, um, you know, what we set out to do and, and meet the client's goals. And so that that can be really, really frustrating for me. And that, I mean, it may or may not change with more experience in the industry. I suspect for me personally, it will not change. Uh, but I think, again, having, you know, gathering as much information and and leaving the client um, in in as good a position as you possibly can in the circumstances, whether that means providing alternatives for coverage, like the accident and sickness that you mentioned, uh, or whether it's you know providing other services um, in terms of you know whether it's the investment side or uh, you know recommendations and referrals for other um, for other needs that they may have. You know, I think you just do the best you can in terms of that. And uh, and then, you know, if there's any opportunity for reconsideration in the future or anything like that, then I think it's also important to, you know, try to diarize that within your own system and come back to the client later. Um, and, and don't necessarily let that drop just because it didn't work out um, the first time around. Yeah, that's some really good advice is that it's not a lost cause. And, and even for those upset clients, and justifiably so, but even for those upset clients, possibly, you know, you come back a couple of years later and it is better, right? It creates a yeah. better outcome. So that's really good. I appreciate this, Jessica. I think it's a very important conversation to be ready to have. And we want to have it in a way, as you said, with clients that, that promotes empathy and understanding. So thanks for being willing to discuss this challenging topic, right? Yeah, it is. Well, it's my pleasure, uh, Jason. And I, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about it. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea. 
but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, we can hear in the interview how much Jessica really takes this to heart, really clearly cares about her relationship with her clients and cares about how those clients get treated by the insurers that she uses. I want to just take a couple of minutes here on disability underwriting. Of course, underwriting for disability insurance is a little bit tricky, and I'm impressed to hear Jessica who's just a couple of years in the business doing a fair bit of disability work here. I know a lot of people are a little bit intimidated by that product. I do think it helps uh, Jessica's background as a lawyer because as the folks that I know who do a lot of disability insurance work will tell you, in disability insurance, it's all about the contract. Much more complicated on the contract side with disability insurance as compared to life insurance. With life insurance, of course, uh, dead is dead. That's pretty straightforward. But with disability insurance, that inability to work and inability to earn income and your reduction in income, it's all of those factors that play into claims. And if you're not willing to dig into the contract a little bit, it's very difficult to determine when a benefit should pay in a disability policy. So I don't think it's a coincidence that she's pretty comfortable in that disability world and she also has that legal background. I find the same thing. I just finished a bunch of group insurance courses and same thing there. When you get into long-term disability claims, it all comes down to the contract. Okay, as for underwriting for disability insurance, we didn't get into this at all, but it's something that I think is worth exploring. We did talk about pre-underwriting a bit, but we didn't talk about it in any significant detail. And something that actually a student who took in the old days, the RHU, now CHS course with me, years and years ago taught me was he always does pre-underwriting to a fairly significant extent. This fellow in particular is in rural northern Alberta, and he said it's very common that you would underwrite somebody, put their occupation on the application for insurance, and the underwriter really has no clue what that means. And so what he used to do, I'm not sure if he's still doing this or not, I haven't talked to him about this in a while, but what he used to do is actually go to the client's workplace, or today you get the client to do this, and just take a picture of the client's workplace. That, you know, literally a picture in this case is worth a thousand words, and that picture then goes off with the underwriting and the underwriter gets a chance to see, oh, okay, you know, I, I sort of envisioned that this was a, a workplace full of physical risks or whatever the case is. But a lot of times if you're talking about, say, an oil field operator, really that person works in a, an ATCO type of trailer most of the time. So I've always liked that. I've always liked, and you hear Jessica talk about in the interview here, a fair bit of communication with underwriters. And that does require, again, as you hear, maintaining a good relationship with those underwriters. You have to be I think especially for somebody newer to the business, I know some more experienced people who aren't shy about picking up the phone and, and sort of berating an underwriter. I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan of that approach, but 
I get why sometimes that happens. I think though that as you're developing those relationships and really just you know relatively new, you can't presume that you know too much. Now on the disability insurance side, we get typically sort of more interesting or more varied underwriting outcomes. You're going to see, you know, some people will get accepted as applied or they'll get just accepted based on the application, no rating or anything like that. You'll sometimes get a rating, although more common with disability insurance to see an exclusion provided. And when you get exclusions, now this is sort of the interesting thing, and you hear us talk about this near the end of the interview, is the exclusions, if it's physical, it tends to be very explicit. So, you know, uh, left knee, for example, and it would cover really anything maybe related to the left knee. If there's been some history, if there's been a surgery there, a sports injury, something like that. For mental illness, you hear us talk about this, that it's really a very broad exclusion, mental illness. And I know for my own disability policy, I was traveling a fair bit when I underwrote my disability insurance, and I had a, an exclusion on there specifically related to travel, but it wasn't a, an exclusion for travel. It was that I had to have a physician in Canada who would diagnose me. That is, I couldn't use a non-Canadian physician as the uh, source of information for, I guess not diagnose, sorry, but a non-Canadian physician couldn't say, Jason can't work, had to come back to Canada basically to handle a claim, which that's not a big deal. But again, that's a far more generous, far more specific type of exclusion than we tend to see on the mental health side. And, and I get this. This is where Jessica does have, I think, this fully justified concern. We can also, with disability insurance, so we talked about accepted as approved, we talked about exclusions, we talked about a rating, we can also get a postpone here, and you can get the same thing with life insurance, and a postpone typically says something like, come back to us in two years with a period of stability, and again, I think Jessica was frustrated here that a postponed decision was less likely with the mental health conditions and it didn't sound like the insurer was willing to commit to that. And, and I'm not sure about this. I don't know if the insurer is not willing to commit to that postponed decision because they just don't know what the next two years are going to give us for statistics or if they don't know what you no know, treatment really looks like for the applicant for insurance in this case. That was a little bit tough. And I think that, again, relatively early days for this, I think Jessica's sort of cancer analogy is useful here. There was a time when people didn't talk openly about cancer. And today, of course, we're still relatively early days for removing that uh, mental health stigma. I know we have like Bell, Let's Talk and that kind of thing. I still think on the whole, people who are dealing with mental health issues are less likely to disclose that than people who are dealing with, let's say, physical health issues. So maybe it shows up in there a little bit where just that you know early days still and the insurers are still trying to get their feet under them for the range of mental health issues that can show up here. I did want to comment that uh, Jessica, I think, did a really good job. She talked about managing client relationships here and managing client expectations. And I think that she did a great job of talking about when she got bad news 
how does she handle that when she's dealing with the client? And some of that is just taking it to the client and saying, look, you're not going to get the insurance that you applied for the way you applied for it. How do we respond to that? And we didn't get into this too much in the interview, but this is where from a financial planning perspective, we really have to be thinking about risk management, big picture here. So the insurance is one part, a very important part, but just one part of the overall risk management picture. So if I have a client who's uninsurable and we run into a problem like what Jessica described here, I want to look at, do we amp up the emergency fund a little bit? Do we pay special attention to employment? Do we make sure that that person is always working at a place where there's a good solid group benefits package in place? Do we really place a high value then on continuing employment at that place? And I know this is a this is a very real thing for Americans. I don't see it too much in Canada, but you'll find a lot of Americans who say, I can't leave my job because I've got that's super valuable health insurance. Well, if you've got a Canadian who isn't carrying any personal disability insurance and can't get underwritten for it, maybe they should be taking the same approach where they say, you know, I, I really am tied to this job. I can't just move. I can't quit without knowing that I'm going someplace else that has reasonable disability insurance for me. We didn't get into limitations around group either. But another thing to watch, especially with smaller groups, is that you're likely to run into non-evidence maximums or non-evidence limits on your group long-term disability. And this is where, again, reading the benefits booklet will tell you what those non-evidence maximums or non-evidence limits are. So we do want to take that into account properly when we're underwriting for disability insurance. So again, Jessica talks a little bit about preparing for those difficult conversations. And I think this is good advice. She says, you know, sometimes wait a day, just give everything a chance to sort of settle in, make sure you have all the information. Uh, I think depending on how difficult you find those conversations, that's where you might think about time of day. You might think about scripting it a little bit. You might think about practicing some of the, uh, the things that might come up in there. I don't think it's a bad idea to pull out your phone and record yourself having some of that conversation, see how that feels, see how that looks. And really the goal here is to present this news to a client in a way that allows them still to continue in the, let's say, financial planning or risk management discussion. We want to, of course, give them the bad news. That's an absolute necessity. But if we can give them the bad news and, and present it as sort of, look, you're a, you're a difficult risk. And because of that, there's some other stuff we have to address here. And a lot of that is going to come down to the relationship you have with that client. So I think that when Jessica talks about preparing well for this, and she obviously likes to have a lot of information, to have all the facts as it were. So that's how she presents it for herself or prepares herself for it. I think whatever it is that you do, it's got to be something that fits with how you've developed your relationships with your clients. Okay, lots of great stuff in that interview. I thought Jessica did a good job of navigating the problem. It's a difficult issue, still relatively early days for this. So I really appreciate the conversation we were able to have here. And I learned a few things from that, which I always enjoy. 
the number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. Okay, lately I've been taking a few minutes at the end of some of these episodes to talk about other podcasts I've enjoyed. And I want to give a shout out to the Mind and Money podcast. This is a couple of guys out of Ottawa, financial planners out there, Sean Todd and Corey Butler at Aceived of Financial. And this is what I would really consider a content marketing sort of podcast where Sean and Corey go through interviews with uh, people from often the local area, although they recently had Kelly Keene on there, who's the FP Canada uh, brand ambassador. And they will go through how people perceive their employment, their careers. They talk about relationships with money. They get into some physical and mental health issues. I quite enjoy it. And I think it's a good example of what a sort of advisor's content marketing podcast could look like, where you really just are trying to sort of expand that network. And I'm sure that this is something that they enjoy doing. It certainly sounds like it. Just nice to have those chances to have in-depth conversations with their clients. They're still relatively early days for this. I, I hope they keep it up. But if you're thinking, you know, I'd like to do a podcast of my own, I think this is a really good one for financial advisors or financial planners to give a listen to and hear what that uh, might look like. Okay, I'm excited for our next couple of episodes. Our next two episodes are both going to be with estate lawyers. We're going to get the chance to talk about some capacity issues as well as some very specific planning issues around powers of attorney with respect to business owners. And I think both of those episodes will have a lot of great content in them, a lot of very helpful stuff for those dealing both in the sort of retirement and pre-retirement markets, as well as for those who work with business owners. I think you'll hear some overlap here with some of what we talked about with Michael a few episodes ago. So thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.